We'll be reading the text of 1 John chapter 4, and then we'll go into chapter 5 as well. So if you've found 1 John, we'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is our custom. Although 1 John is missing from my Bible currently. There it is. Found it there? 1 John chapter 4. Beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the, wor- and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has set the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him, who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is He who overcomes the world but He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood and It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Well, this morning you could hopefully derive from the text we read earlier in 1 John the direction of the message this morning as we consider the celebration of our Lord's first advent. 
And we are going to take a doctrinal direction at this rather than a historical one. Rather than look and rehearse the historical record of Christ's birth from the Gospels, we are going to look at again, and I know I've done this in the past, this is nothing new to you, and I seem to go some days, some years historically, other years I want to look at some of the more doctrinal issues, and uh, so this is familiar territory for you. But today we want to consider two aspects of the coming of our Savior. And we're going to focus in on one name. And that is Emmanuel, God with us. And consider the implications and applications of that truth that God has come to be with us. And First John is going to give us the framework for that as we look at not just how to judge and determine where false teaching is. Certainly that is the root of 1 John 4 and 5. Um, but also to look at the thrust of, I believe, this passage. Of course, we have studied 1 John as a church extensively, but we want to consider that this in a larger context of one of the third chapters here of the thrust not only being of identifying what a false teacher would do, but more importantly, what does the truth mean for the Christian? If we are genuinely celebrating the birth of our Lord, what does it look like? Now, here is one argument, and I've heard some people share this with me, uh, that, you know, why are we worried about splitting theological hairs and they think that this is a theological hair, and the authors of Scripture don't think so, but many people do. Why are you so interested in splitting theological hairs when there's so many things going on in the church that are so devastating to the church? When we have sin rampant, we have the Christian community being inundated by these things of the world where we have divorce rates that are the same here as out there. We have homosexuality going on within the church, immorality. We have, we have the same rebellion going on among our children and teens that we see out in the world. We see all the influx of sin being present in the world. Why isn't this our concern? And I would contend that that would be treating the symptom and not the cause. And in fact, I am going to be presenting a very, hopefully a very strong argument from First John today that in fact the reason we have such a degree of disobedience in our churches is because we have not done the doctrinal work for too long. We have not carefully delineate who Jesus is and why does the birth narrative matter so much? Not just about the virgin birth and the, and the record there, um, but why does it matter to me so much that I have to not be too far one direction or too far the other direction and whichever direction you want to go is going to lead you into error. And that error is going to lead you into disobedience. I would contend that rather than ignoring the crisis of the church today, that people who 
do thorough doctrinal work are actually the ones that are truly addressing it. Yes, we could come and have seminars and here's ten ways to raise your kids. Here's ten ways to protect your marriage. Here's ten ways to, to, to overcome addictions. Whatever it is, we can have all of those. But they are treating the symptom, not the cause, not the disease. The disease that is infected the church is going to be evident before us very quickly, I hope, in the course of this study. And this is what we want to guard ourselves from or root out from ourselves if it is present. To do so, we need the Lord's help. So let's ask Him for it. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us. Thank You again for the opportunity to look into Your Word today and for the uh, Spirit that You have freely given to all who would ask that uh, You We'll give wisdom to those that ask of you. Lord, we ask it now. You might fill this time with your truth. You might guard it from error. That this might be a time of worship. It might also be a time of radical change. That we conform ourselves as a result of our time in your word with your people today more and more to your son Jesus Christ. That this might be a celebration of your birth like no other. Because we have grown nearer to you than at any other time. We pray for that power of your person and your work in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. John certainly is starting off in chapter 4 by directing us to consider the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And we're going to see a classic Hebrew uh, presentation of this twofold truth that is the measure. The measure of truth versus the measure of error. How do we identify the true prophets of God and false prophets? We've already seen its implications, its necessity in our study in First and Second Corinthians. We come now to this passage and I've waited for this a little bit. I've referenced this passage a couple of times, but I've waited for today to really introduce it and to really work on it with regard to First and Second Corinthians. In verse 2, we come to here's how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And he's going to have this first proposition before us that this is the first indicator is that they will never attack in any way, shape, or form the humanity of Jesus Christ. Of how He came and who He was. That they will never do damage to that facet of our Savior. That He has indeed come in the flesh. And that that is one part. It's not the entirety. He's not done with His argument. He's still developing it. But he wants to start off with that because that's what was being confronted largely in his day. Was, and it's still out there today in many, fa- in many families of theology that uh, want to deny, um, even on a very small scale, they'll even give lip service to Christmas. Uh, you hate to use that term because it's really Moth's death, and it's, I don't understand that. But uh, Christ's birth, they'll give lip service to that birth But in the fine-tuning of their theology, they are essentially denying his full humanity. 
And I will split that hair, because I don't think it's a hair. I think it's a beam. It's a big thing. Holding up the structure of our salvation is Christ's full humanity. That when you begin chiseling away at that, even if it just seems like, well, we're just shaving off a little bit here and there because it bothers me. We start to do significant damage to the structure of our faith, and the Bible calls such an individual who's going to do that kind of work a false teacher, a false prophet. And we are to avoid them and cast them out and correct them if we're able, but we are called upon to confess fully that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And we are bothered by that word flesh because flesh in the Bible, as we know, is often used to refer to our sinful bodies. And of course, there were many in that day who uh, were ascetics and they felt that the body was the, that's the, the residence of sin. And so when Christ saves us, um, there's some aspect of man that isn't really touched by sin, Uh, But we know that sin is pervasive. It touches all of us, not just our bodies. But these ascetics felt that the body was the place of sin. And so the way to attack sin was to attack your body. And this word flesh was often used in that sense. And uh, they have some scripture that they can use or abuse to look at that. And so because of this horribly negative view of flesh, of our bodies... They could not conceive that there was any way, shape, or form that anything holy, holy, holy could really fully come completely in human flesh. You see, they examined their, and developed their theology based upon their experience instead of the truth of God's Word. That God designed man whether you're a dualist, triad, whatever, trichotomist, dichotomist, whether you think there's two parts of man, three parts, four parts, ten parts. Um, God designed man as, a, as this unit in, Revel- or in Genesis. And at the conclusion of getting dirt together and forming man and breathing in his nostrils the breath of life, um, and man becomes a living soul, uh, God's conclusion was, this is good. It was we who introduced sin in the garden. And so when we look at coming in the flesh, there were certainly those that wanted to, we can't let the divine have that kind of intimacy with the carnal. And so they sought to distance Jesus from the flesh a little bit. And there have been many, many, many shades of that position that have been prevalent throughout church history. And there is a shade of that prevalent today. You might say, well, that's a very light shade of that, that error. But how much of that shading are you going to tolerate in your doctrine? It's crucial. We're going to talk about why it's so crucial here in just a minute. But that's just one facet. So we cannot deny Jesus came in the flesh. He really was a baby. He really was formed in a, in a woman's womb. He really was born. He really did need to eat. And all of the fundamental physical necessities that we have, he had. He had to sleep. He had to rest. He got tired. 
Um, he got hungry. He got thirsty. All those things he shared with us. He became fully human. 100% human. This is truth. And when we confess this, it's going to impact us. We're going to look at that impact in a minute. We're going to set the theology first. And so, we will look at the power of Christ becoming flesh. Why is it so necessary to me? But there's the other side. There's another truth that needs to be acknowledged. And John goes on to relate that. Uh, if we want to jump forward to verse 15. Here's the other whoever. Remember we said if you confess this in verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, you have to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That must be confessed. And I would contend fully. The other confession that must also accompany this, given in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. So now we have the other side of the, of, the, of the aspects of Jesus Christ, and that is His deity. That not only must you confess completely and fully that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is 100% humanity, it is also absolutely necessary that you confess fully and completely that Jesus Christ is deity. That He did not surrender it, that He did not... Uh, cast it off, that he did not in any fashion stop being God, even while he was walking among men, and that we don't come into any form of modalism or any kind of uh, idea that somehow um, he became a God, that he wasn't God for that period of time. Uh, all those kinds of errors all attack the deity of Jesus Christ. And they are Prevalent. In fact, these are probably more prevalent than attacking the fact that he came in the flesh. Um, and by the way, the reason we have several doctrines that are prevalent in our uh, systems of Christianity is because we are conceding this fact to people like the Muslims. That yes, there's no way that deity can have that kind of intimacy with carnality with fleshliness. And so we say, well, then Mary can't be uh, a true human. She has to be a superhuman. And that was a theology developed really to appease the Muslims as they were cleaning out Europe through Spain and threatening the Roman church. How can we appease you? Well, you say that God had sex with Mary. And he can't have that kind of intimacy with flesh. So we have to make Mary something more than just flesh. So that we can appease them. Well, now we come to this deity. Is Jesus fully God? And of course, we have those heirs that are out there that talk about the uh, assault on Christ's deity, that he wasn't fully God, or he became God, or... or aspects of that, and John makes it very clear that as you look at this nativity, as you look at this scene, you must recognize that while this appears to our eyes to be just another baby, 
we understand him to be much more. We join Anna and Simeon and the prophets. We join John the Baptist and his parents and we join the Magi and we recognize there's something more substantial to this child. He is not only fully man, he is fully God. He is not just to be adorned as a king, but to be worshipped as the king of kings. And hence, we have the angelic representation. We have the stellar representation. We have all of this pointing as a culmination of prophetic material to this child who is Emmanuel, God, with us. And we cannot attack the God part of that three-word phrase, nor the us part of that three-word phrase. And John makes that very clear. These must be our dual confession right now, is that we are celebrating God with us. That deity became humanity. For me. And so these are the two confessions that John insists on. You must have these two. Or you are not of God. If you assault either one of these two points, you are assaulting Christianity and you are in the camp of a false teacher. And and you're attacking Christianity. And so any attack on the deity of Christ is an attack on our faith, on our salvation, on the Savior of the world. Any attack on the humanity of Christ, um, no matter how (laughs) good intended, is an attack on our faith, on our salvation, Savior of the world. And they're subtle. So subtle that their effect is being felt and we don't even realize that that's where it's coming from. And this brings us to what John wants to share. What does it matter whether or not I fully believe that Jesus was 100% human and fully believe that Jesus was 100% God? Why does that matter? Well, John lays out before he concludes this by reiterating the same two principles. We read all the way into chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, because we'll find the exact two principles in reverse order. He starts off, verse 2, you must believe that Jesus came in the flesh. You must also confess, in verse 15, that Jesus is the Son of God. We come to chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. A reiteration of the second. So you have the A-B-B-A format that is very popular in Hebrew uh, argumentation. And so we have the first uh, disclosure, the first confession, Second confession. Now we have the second confession repeated. And the very next verse to summarize this section, it says, This he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. Referring to his physical birth again. And this is imagery that Paul or that John has drawn out of his gospel as well. One, two, and three. Um, his physical birth. So you must have these both. And so we have uh, couched in this passage that's really, it seems like it's intended to tell us what an un, a false teacher is, an unbeliever is. 
Now, we want to look between these two assertions. Here's the two confessions you have to make. And what you will find in between these two assertions is huge when it comes to the Christian experience, isn't it? What's he going to lay out for us? This theology must reap a harvest in your life. If you get this right, if you handle both these confessions in your life, if you get the coming of Christ to earth right, if you celebrate Advent right theologically, this is where it must take you. And the fact that it isn't taking Christians to this point tells us that something is going on wrong back here in our theology. Because if we really understood Christ the way John describes him here, then it would produce what John says it's going to produce. What does it say it's going to produce? First of all, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Wow! Let that sink on you a little bit. That if Jesus Christ really did come in the flesh, really did live through all the things we have, and, and he's offering us a salvation, and, and he conquered sin and death. He went through and lived a sinless life in the flesh, not in an Edenic world, but in a sin-scarred world, in a world that was opposed to him, that sought to bring him to sin. He was victorious. And that one who conquered sin... And every temptation, such as any man has commonly experienced, he's in you. And if he's in you, you can overcome the world. And because we have diminished the humanity of Christ and made him a little, just the tiniest little bit less than fully human, we have given men an excuse for their sin. What could I do? I'm only human. Right? Wait a minute. You aren't only human anymore. You have a mutual resident there in your flesh. God that you have claimed as your own and you brought in, and now it says that you are overcomers. You would overcome the world. You would have victory over temptation. Why? Because Jesus Christ has shown us the pattern, the way, and he has done so fully human. And those that want to say that Jesus Christ could not have sinned uh, give mankind an excuse. Now I have an excuse. Well, I'm not God in the flesh, therefore I don't have the resources Jesus had to keep from sinning. And we rip out pages of the Scripture and their value to excuse our sin. Because we didn't get the theology right. And we attack the fleshliness of Christ, the humanity of Christ, just that little sliver, just that little cut into it. And it gives us that room to excuse our own sin. And John says, listen, if you understand Jesus coming as a human, that he went through all of it. He went through all the same. He had the same problems with siblings. 
He had the same problems with parents, the generation gap. He had the same problems, the same issues. He had opposition. He had the same deal where he had to go through the process of growing up in a home and dealing with the authority of parents. He had the same issues in society. He had the same things. Yet, he did not sin. And the Bible tells us that because of that, we have two things. We have a God that understands us. He understands what you're going through. He understands every hurt that you have going on in your life. Every temptation, he understands. He's encountered them all. Every one of them. And secondly, we have an example to follow. How do I get victory? Well, first of all, if Christ is in you, you have no excuse for your sin. You have no excuse for not being victorious. You are to be called overcomers. Overcoming the hardships and the, and the horrors of this world. Uh, overcoming sin that, and, that we can't any longer coddle in our life. Because we understand that, that I can't use the excuse while I'm only human. Because Jesus is going to look at you and says, well, I was human once. Well, actually, he still is. His incarnation wasn't just for 30-some years. It was from Bethlehem on. I was only human. Well, there goes that argument. God ain't going to listen to that. He won't put up with it. He was tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin, and thus he becomes our exemplar as well as our Savior. And so John says, listen, if God's in you and he's that great, then you should be overcomers. And he describes this in a manner of talking about we should be loving one another because that's godly. We should... Be living through Him, in verse 9. That we might live through Him. And we often think about eternal life, but that's about this life as well. He loved us, sent His Son. And if God loved us, verse 11, we ought to love one another. How do we know that we abide in Him? We have His Holy Spirit within us. And we find... That the evidence of it is that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. We obey. The power of Christ in the flesh is the drive to holiness. And once we start to chisel little notches into Christ's humanity, we begin to make room for our excuses of why we sin. No one understands. I'm just weak. Blah, 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 blah. Christ came in the flesh. Tell me what suffering you've experienced that he didn't. He was abandoned, rejected by everyone that he was close to. 
one of his very own, betrayed him. Tell me what he didn't experience yet without sin. He becomes our example. He also becomes our example of love. Not only of obedience, but of love. He loved us to leave heaven's glory to come and be completely 100% human. And once we grasp that, now how, where is your excuse not to love one another? What does that love require of us? Well, they're not very lovable. Those people are really hard to love. Yeah, you guys all know who, that's probably me, but um, who that is in your life, they're so hard to love them. They're obnoxious. I don't get along with them. They're just hard to love. Let me tell you something. Christ loved you, and there is no one harder to love than humans in sin. It's not measured by the object of love, but of the lover. And because Christ came in the flesh, fully man, you have no excuse to not love at least the brethren. And as Christ came to be a sacrifice to cover people's sins, we are told by other writers of Scripture that in Proverbs, James, that the real power of a loving Christian is to cover a multitude of sins. It's the power of God's love for us to cover our sins and the real measure of saying we love one another is the capacity to forgive and make atonement for confessed sin, repented sin. We cannot come close to these expectations of Christians if we do not have this dual confession that Christ is fully man and fully God. We will always find excuses to not fulfill the requirements of 1 John 4 and 5. If we can just chisel away a little bit at his deity, a little bit at his humanity, I can find room to excuse my disobedience, to excuse my unlovingness, to excuse the manner in which I obey. Yeah, God even cares about the manner. Yeah, he doesn't want your obedience to be burdensome. Oh, I've got to do this. I have to go to church today because God wants me to go. That's called burdensome. That kind of obedience doesn't impress God. And if you knew who it was you were coming to celebrate today, if we understood fully who that child in that manger was, fully man, fully God, our Savior, the Savior of the world, the propitiator of our sins, sent by a loving Father, then this is how we ought to live. You see... We can sit and try to say, well, we want to do some behavior modification in the church, and so we're going to show you these patterns of behavior of people that succeed in, in overcoming this sin or this sin. We call them diseases, but uh, addictions, but they're sins. This sin and this sin or this sin or this issue or this struggle. Um, 
and we can do all of that, and the counseling world is really heavy into that in the Christian community as well as in the, in the world. And really, all it's about is addressing symptoms, the behaviors. If we modify our behaviors, and there's too much in Christianity today that is confusing behavioral modification with an acknowledgement of divine truth that impacts our lives. Do not confuse the two. They're going on all the time. And so we have pastors trying to help people navigate through this and most of the modern book writing that I've been exposed to and been reading um, really takes that direction that we're going to help you navigate through the uh, issues of life um, behaviorally, really. They're all behavioral modifications. Instead of addressing the disease. The real issue is we don't really know who our God is. We don't grasp what it means that we have a Savior who came in the flesh. That went through all the junk that you go through in the world. Yet without sin. That He did it out of a love for us. That He endured all of that mistreatment uh, that He didn't have to. But he did. Why? Because he loved you. We have no excuse for disobedience. We have no excuse for yielding to temptation. We have no excuse for, because we're supposed to be overcomers, we have no excuse for failing to love one another. Because we have the love of God for us, we have the example of the man Jesus for us. And we bring those together and the, the dual truths here are going to yield the dual results. That just as we held God coming in the flesh and therefore we recognize that we are the overcomers of sin... And just as and be obedient and obeying His commandments with the right spirit, so also once we recognize and acknowledge God as our Jesus is fully God, now I have exposure to the love of God that He truly did leave the glory of heaven in all its splendor to hang on a cross and cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And let's be real honest. Of all the injuries of life and all the turmoil around us, um, fundamentally, what most people come to boil it down, no matter how many people can be faulted for what has occurred to us, we come down with that same statement. My God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Christ knows That we ask that question. Because he asked it too. And even that was no excuse for unfaithfulness. Christ became sin for us. And my contention is the only way he could do that is to be 100% man. There's no way God could become sin. Only a man. And become sin. 
And once we begin to think that Jesus Christ was some has some inside edge that we don't have access to, somehow we don't have access to the Bible and the Holy Spirit that he had access to to resist temptation, that somehow um, that statement um, of, well, is it going to be my will or yours, God, today? That came across Jesus' mind, did it not? Gethsemane's prayer. He had the same moral dilemmas and struggles that you have. He's our advocate. He is our mediator. He is the one who has done all this for us that we might be overcomers, that we might be able to love on a level the world cannot get. And John makes it very clear, the world can't get this kind of love. They can't understand it. They can't connect to it. Maybe on a superficial level, but not to the point of of willing to, to accept complete personal injury, even to the point of death, with a forgiving spirit. And this is the power of martyrdom. It's not, go ahead and kill me because uh, you're going to get yours on the judgment day. No. It's the power of Stephen's that say, while they're killing me, Father, forgive Christ himself on the cross. But Stephen said, don't hold this against them. And sharing them the vision of heaven. This is the power of Christianity. When you understand who this Jesus really is. And we really confess it. Does it blow our minds sometimes? Yeah, it does. Is it, is it take, require some faith? Certainly. Um, but not nearly as much as what some of these others believe. And so we are called to celebrate Christ's birth as the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. And the result is not more Christmas lights and a bigger tree and more presents. That is not the evidence that you have the Spirit of the coming of Christ. The evidence that you really have the Spirit of the coming of Christ on you this week is that you love one another. That you keep His commandments. and They're not burdensome. This is the evidence that you have truly grasped That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And that He is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us. For the opportunity to look in Your Word and to consider its truth, we thank You also. And Lord, we have to confess before You that we have been very tolerant and even wishy-washy in our doctrine of letting people redefine you and chink away at this aspect of who you are and what you've done or that one, very many times on subtle levels. But yet, Lord, we know that its impact is evident in your church. That we do not keep your commandments gladly. That we do not overcome. 
that we know not love as you loved. Lord, forgive us of this. Not only the behavior, but the error behind the behavior. Cleanse us of it. That we might celebrate you this week like no other week. Filled with your obedience to your word. Filled with overcoming all that is thrown at us from various places. And loving your people. as we've never done before. Lord, we thank You for our Savior who can understand all that we have and do encounter. Who knows we are flesh not just because You made it, but because You wore it. And wear it still. Lord, we also thank you for a Savior who is God Almighty, whose power grants us the right to be described as overcomers. Lord, help us to walk in that. We rejoice in all that you've done for us through that one. Born in such mean estate, ended his days on this earth seemingly in defeat on the cross, but raised to victory and ascended to heaven. Lord, we thank you. We have such a Savior that we can declare that you are with us. We thank you in the name of Emmanuel. Amen.